I'm Elijah Blumoff, and you're listening to Versecraft, a podcast about the art of poetry seen through the craft of particular poems. In each episode, I recite an exceptional piece of verse, then analyze its overall form, and follow with a sentence-by-sentence exploration of the content of the poem. To aid in understanding, you can follow along with the text of each poem included in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Ohio Poetry Association. Today, we'll be looking at a dark and graceful work by the two-time U.S. Poet Laureate Stanley Kunitz. Kunitz, who lived for over a century, 1905 to 2006, was a widely celebrated poet who, like many other poets of the mid-20th century, began his poetic career writing intellectually dense, formal verse, and transitioned in middle age to writing poems that featured freer versification, looser forms, and more autobiographical material. As you might imagine, I tend to see this development as a devolution rather than an evolution. To me, it is obvious that a decline in the rigor of one's thought and one's craftsmanship is a decline overall. As such, I've chosen to focus on one of Kunitz's early poems, Organic Bloom, a fatalistic yet beautiful meditation on the limits of human reason, which exhibits his enthusiasm for form and intellectual ambition at their best. The poem goes like this. Organic Bloom The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. But life escapes closed reason. We explain our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, only to learn of some insidious pain beyond the limits of our charted hell. A guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin conceived against the self. So, vast and vaster, the plasmic circles of gray discipline spread outward to include each new disaster. Enormous floats the brain's organic bloom, till, bursting like a fruit, it scatters doom. We can recognize immediately that this is a true blue English sonnet. How do we know? Let's go down the list. 14 lines, check. Iambic pentameter, check. Three ABAB rhyming quatrains with a concluding couplet, check and check. Like some other poems we have looked at so far in this podcast, Kunitz employs an orthodox iambic pentameter with few metrical substitutions, but keeps his rhythm fresh through the use of enjambment, varied word lengths, and varied punctuation. I've mentioned punctuation variation several times at this point, so now might be a good time to show an example of how it works. In line six of this poem, we have the line, our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, with a comma before the first cell and a comma after the last cell. By framing the phrase cell by cell in commas, Kunitz makes it a parenthetical statement, and that is how our inner ear recites it, which is different from how it would be read otherwise. This constitutes a rhythmic variation, even though it is not a metrical variation. Now might also be a good time to define the word caesura. A caesura is a pause in the metrical line, usually somewhere in the middle. The concept of a caesura is important for several older styles of poetry, like ancient Greek, Latin, and Anglo-Saxon poetry, where it constitutes a required element of the meter. In modern poetry, even formal modern poetry, it is less important, but still useful when discussing rhythmic variation. For instance, in that line we just discussed, the first comma after cell marks the caesura in that line. We read it, 
our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell. That is, we recite three IMs, pause, and then recite the two concluding IMs. This placement of the caesura after the third beat is where it's most commonly found. Yet moving the caesura around is a good way to give rhythmic variation without using metrical variation. For instance, in line nine, we read, a guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin, with a comma after the word prayers. This comma places the caesura of the line after the fourth beat, which, among other things, differentiates the way it is read from the aforementioned line six. Although this poem is composed of one single 14-line stanza, because it is a sonnet, we can break it down into a sonnet's parts in order to analyze it. Let's begin with the first quatrain. The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. Without preamble, we are thrust into a meditation on the nature of the mind. The mind, the speaker claims, constructs a system. The system may be philosophical, religious, artistic, or scientific. In order to reconcile thought and sense, that is, the physical and mental worlds. The paradox of these two worlds coexisting is what is known in philosophy as the mind-body problem. How can the mind, an immaterial, subjective, sub subjective experience, interact with the body and the world, which are material and objective? This problem is one of the fundamental questions in philosophy, and tends to divide philosophers into three camps. Materialists, who believe that the only real world is the physical world, and who tend to reduce subjective experience to some mysterious side effect of the brain's functions. Idealists, who believe that the physical world is an illusion, and that all reality consists of the thoughts of some godlike mind. And dualists, who believe that there are both mental and physical worlds which interact through some mysterious process yet to be discovered. It is difficult to tell what the speaker's stance on this issue is. He speaks of the brain, but it becomes clear that it is the mind that he is actually referring to. The mind can expand to encompass new ideas, but physically speaking, the brain always remains the same size. By confusing these distinctions, momentously its tissued meaning grows, the speaker evokes a surreal image of a brain that is physically expanding, an organ that is blooming, in order to solve and integrate experience, that is, reconcile the mind to the sensory world and impose order on its surroundings. Now let's begin again and continue on to the second quatrain. The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. But life escapes closed reason. We explain our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, only to learn of some insidious pain beyond the limits of our charted hell. With this, but life escapes closed reason, we encounter what we might call a premature volta. Already in the second quatrain, the argument has shifted. Though the brain constructs its system and grows to solve and integrate experience, its quest to comprehend and thereby dominate its surroundings is ultimately futile, because closed reason, aka logic, is an inadequate tool to describe our fundamentally irrational lives and world. We explain chaos into cosmos. Chaos is Greek for disorder, and cosmos is Greek for order. Of course, Kunis also uses the word cosmos because it connotes outer space, 
It therefore suggests the human quest to understand the universe as a whole. Yet though we do this, we inevitably learn of some insidious pain. That is, we come across some stubborn sense of suffering in our own human nature that cannot be appeased by our lofty system. This line is interesting because it is the most metrically irregular in the poem. In a sonnet that is composed almost entirely of pure iambic lines, this line, only to learn of some insidious pain, begins with a troche, only, and ends with an anapest, the deus pain in insidious pain. This is a fine bit of word painting, just as the insidious pain interrupts the system we have used to contain our world, so too the line about insidious pain interrupts the system of iambic pentameter we have used to contain our words. In the next line, it's interesting that Kunitz describes the world we know and understand as a charted hell. Should we interpret this to mean that a world that is known and domesticated, charted, rather than a mystery, is hellish, because it is a purely mechanical and because it is purely mechanical and therefore bereft of the spiritual? Or should we interpret it to mean that reality itself is hell, because, like Sisyphus in Tartarus, every time we think we have achieved something, we realize all our progress has meant nothing? I think, given the cultural associations we have of what constitutes a hellish punishment, the latter interpretation is more likely, though the former is also interesting to consider. Let's begin again and continue on into the third quatrain. The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. But life escapes closed reason. We explain our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, only to learn of some insidious pain. Beyond the limits of our charted hell, a guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin conceived against the self. So, vast and vaster, the plasmic circles of gray discipline spread outward to include each new disaster. The use of the word hell inspires the speaker to frame his thoughts in yet more Christian diction. The insidious pain is a guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin conceived against the self. What this self-sabotaging guilt or sin could be is not entirely clear. It is interesting in itself that guilt and sin are conflated as if they were synonyms. If we take the syntax at face value, it would seem that the speaker is saying that Rather than sin being a cause and guilt being an effect, guilt is the sin in question. This would make sense as it is a sin conceived against the self. Guilt is a punishment inflicted by one's mind upon itself. By this interpretation, the speaker believes that the guilt is unwarranted, thus it is a sin. Alternatively, we could ignore the way the speaker seems to conflate sin and guilt as an accident of phrasing and accept the traditional idea that guilt that the guilt is felt as a result of some prior sin. In the first case, our question is, why do we feel unjustified guilt and thereby sin against ourselves? In the second case, our question is, in what way have we legitimately sinned against ourselves, which justifies our guilt? If we ask the first question, we are romantics who believe in the pure goodness of the human soul and who wish to eradicate the social conditioning which causes us to feel guilt, which is nothing but a neurosis. If we ask the second question, we are orthodox believers in the reality of good and evil who wish to root out the malevolent tendencies in ourselves. The speaker seems to straddle these contrary positions quite precariously.
Regardless of which question you ask, or which interpretation you prefer, I think the answer will have something to do with spiritual hollowness. All our progress, all our ever-expanding attempts to understand and master the universe, do not quell the itch of dissatisfaction we feel with our human condition, our sense of existing as creatures of self-conscious limitation and mortality, who suffer a forever unfulfilled passion to possess the secrets of existence. Shakespeare puts the situation eloquently in Troilus and Cressida. This is the monstrosity in love, that the will is infinite and the execution confined, that the desire is boundless and the act a slave to limit. We may feel guilty about this sense of unfulfillment, a guilt, the romantic would argue, we should not feel. Instead of berating ourselves for always being dissatisfied, we should press on in the hopes of achieving our goal no matter what happens. Alternatively, according to the orthodox believer, this dissatisfaction may be a sign we are suffering for our hubris, and that attempting to go beyond the prescribed limits of what we are, sinning against the self, is the true neurosis, a neurosis both futile and immoral. The speaker goes on to suggest that we tend to take that we tend to take the romantic suggestion and double down on our ineffectual attempts to understand ourselves and the world. The plasmic circles of gray discipline spread outward to include each new disaster. Like an exercised muscle, the brain is stimulated by pain and damage to grow bigger and bigger. Rather than take on the humility and serenity of a monk or saint, most of us, and civilization at large, the speaker implies, are trying to follow in the footsteps of Nietzsche's Ubermensch. What does not kill me makes me stronger. Now let's read the poem all the way through the concluding couplets. The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. But life escapes closed reason. We explain our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, only to learn of some insidious pain beyond the limits of our charted hell. A guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin conceived against the self. So, vast and vaster, the plasmic circles of gray discipline spread outward to include each new disaster. Enormous floats the brain's organic bloom, till, bursting like a fruit, it scatters doom. Up to the final line of this poem, the speaker has expressed ominous doubts about the prospects of the brain's systems to solve and integrate experience. Yet it is only in this final line that the speaker's judgment thunders down upon the hubris of mankind in the form of a vivid, sensuous metaphor. Just as some kinds of ripened fruits eventually burst and scatter seeds, so too the brain or mind, which attempts to expand beyond its natural limitations, will eventually destroy itself and scatter doom across the world. What form this doom will take is unspecified. Mass psychosis, environmental destruction, nuclear war, a biochemical disaster, a pandemic. These are all options. Is there any hope in this poem? Perhaps. When my friend and I first read the phrase, scatters doom, we both thought it might mean that doom is vanquished, not proliferated. If we take this in the context of the fruit metaphor, however, as well as the general tendency of the poem, it doesn't track. Nevertheless, the phrase on the page reads as somewhat ambiguous. And 
If we follow through on the fruit metaphor, we might come to a sense of hope the poem actually does possess. If doom is being implicitly compared to scattered seeds, perhaps the speaker is implying that, horrible as it might be, the brain's self-destruction may be responsible for the fertilization of some new future. Of course, if we follow through on the metaphor yet further, we realize that these new brain fruits will also burst. Perhaps what is true on the micro scale is true on the macro scale as well. Life is a cycle of creation and destruction, and it is good that we should recognize and accept this, even as we try, with tragic and even counterproductive results, to stave off our own doom as long as we can. With all that we have learned and explored, let us encounter the poem one last time, as an old friend. Organic Bloom The brain constructs its system to enclose the steady paradox of thought and sense. Momentously, its tissued meaning grows to solve and integrate experience. But life escapes closed reason. We explain our chaos into cosmos, cell by cell, only to learn of some insidious pain beyond the limits of our charted hell. A guilt not mentioned in our prayers, a sin conceived against the self. So, vast and vaster, the plasmic circles of gray discipline spread outward to include each new disaster. Enormous floats the brain's organic bloom, till, bursting like a fruit, it scatters doom. Thank you so much for listening and for letting me put a little verse in your universe. If you liked this episode, please consider rating the show or leaving me a review on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have friends who love poetry, or even better, friends who don't get poetry but wish they did, please let them know about the show. Thanks again, and until next time.